welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifsch-Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by my mother, Dr. Beth Greenfeld, PhD in English Literature, to talk about The Mere Wife by Maria Devana Headley, a modernized adaptation of the medieval epic Beowulf, as well as Headley's new translation of Beowulf. Mom, welcome. Thank you for having me. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about these particular items? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that I do have a PhD in English, and I am Dr. Greenfeld, but this this is not my field. I'm not a medieval English teacher. I taught romance and modern American literature. Why I wanted to talk about it? Because the Headley book is one of the best books I've read this year, and I read some absolutely wonderful books. And once I read a book that's a redoing of a different book, then I have to go backwards and reread, actually, that too. And I haven't read Beowulf before this month since 1980. Unlike me, who have read Beowulf five times this year. (laughs) Well, I I have listened to the um, Seamus Haney thing, but that's an experience more than a occasion. It's just just listening to it. I don't care what language it's in. Right. We're going to be talking about The Mere Wife, which was published in 2018, and uh, Headley's new translation of Beowulf, called Beowulf, A New Translation, published in 2020. Essentially, the story behind this, from what I recall from the introduction, is that essentially she got very intrigued by the figure of Grendel's mother and was therefore inspired first to write a book that is a uh, this modernized adaptation that is in many ways primarily from her perspective, but then also ultimately to do this translation, which makes some interventions and different choices in terms of how it talks about the women and particularly the finger of Grendel's mother. I think she said, because I've listened to some interviews with her, that she was basically looking at a picture book when she was eight years old and saw the picture of Grendel's mother and just, oh my God, a woman warrior, this is fantastic. And then was stunned when she actually read Beowulf to find out she's not the main character in the book. <laughs> no, she's very much not. She's one of these three monsters. So we'll uh, we'll talk later about Beowulf itself and uh, the way that these different figures are depicted. But I wanted to start by just talking about the mere wife, the enumeratio or recap section. It's where you just basically kind of talk through, with the help, of course, of a cat, where we talk through what happens in the text. The kind of initial focus is on this figure of Dana Mill who, as we'll talk about more, is our uh, kind of representation of Grendel's mother. She is in the army in, I don't know, I guess probably the war in Iraq. I actually have no idea whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or you're supposed to think Middle East desert. And I'm not sure you are supposed to figure out exactly which war we're talking about. It's not explicit. I sort of pictured Iraq, but it certainly could be Afghanistan. Right. Who knows? Iraq maybe because they discover a missing city. That sounds more like Iraq, Mesopotamia, but I don't know. And later at some point, there's a reference to the initial mission accomplished Banner, which is Bush and the War anyway. Oh, okay. She gets kidnapped uh, by someone, 
and uh, put in one of those videos where she, you know, defa- where she, you know, denounces America, I guess, and then gets publicly beheaded, except apparently it was all editing and she wasn't actually beheaded. That's what happens. <laughs> she wakes up or kind of comes back to herself and uh, knows, I guess, who she is, but doesn't know anything about what happened to her. And she also doesn't know the context in which she became pregnant. Right. I guess she must at some point actually get brought back to the United States, although the details are a little fuzzy. I think that's where she's interrogated because she that's where she escapes from and she's in the U.S. So they must have brought her here for the interrogation. She is interrogated. She doesn't remember anything. It's very clear that they want to know essentially whether this was a rape or a consensual pregnancy because if it was consensual, then she's a collaborator. She's the one who doesn't want to answer it because she doesn't want to be a collaborator and she doesn't want to be a victim. Well, she also can't answer it. I mean, she don't think she knows. But she could also make something up, but either and Mm -hmm. wrong. Right, right. She gives herself over to the Americans. She's in the desert and that's when something explodes and the shrapnel ruins her eye and she eventually gets Americans so she'll have food and safety. Yeah, so she doesn't actually know the answer to the question, doesn't want to answer it. And I think actually when when she's asked whose child is this, the only response she gives is mine. Right, and they're torturing her. Yeah. She eventually escapes and ends up near Herit Hall, which is a development that seems to have been built just on top of the town that she grew up in. Yeah. This like mountain behind it. And she hides there in like an abandoned train station and in the mountains. It's some sort of suburb of some city, which is not named. In my head, it's New York, but I think that's just because whenever it says the city, I think New York. Ditto, ditto. And it's a weather place. So, and it's yes. hours by train. So it could be any place upstate. And they felt so waspy. It felt sort of Connecticut to me. It did feel very waspy. One of the really interesting moves that Headley makes is that, so she gives birth to her son, Gren, obviously. Grendel. And we don't actually know from most of the book necessarily if Gren is in some ways monstrous or not, if there's anything supernatural about him. She has one scene where she takes him out and the sales lady stares at him and she gets very, yeah, she's staring at my baby because he's a monster and she runs. Right. So there's this question, she's staring at the baby because there's something uh, in some ways kind of off about the baby. Is she just staring at the baby because this one-eyed woman who probably is, who's like very clearly like homeless has a baby and like she's worried about them, you know, who knows? Right. Or is it a, a baby, a person of color and she's never seen one before? Right. And actually I think Dana's ethnicity is not entirely clear. No, it isn't. It's not clear. I would say in general to what extent uh, until basically the end to what extent her fears are real or if they essentially stem from PTSD combined which she obviously has PTSD but is it you know just PTSD combined with reasonable fears about him being a black or brown child and the uh, the kind of real violence that police do against black and brown bodies and so is it that kind of exaggerated in some ways or is it actually him being in some ways monstrous and that's not clear until basically the end all we know is if we can trust anything she says and i think we can he was born with teeth which happens Mm -hmm. and he grows quite tall quite quickly 
but none of these things also happens. are out of normal range. Right. That's really the entire book. What you see when you look at someone and want to figure out whether it's human or monster. And it's nearly impossible to do in many cases because of your own baggage. Right. Yeah. So that's very much, I would say, the overall theme of the book. And also that I guess I would say that the boundaries between human and monster are maybe not that clear to begin with. And she didn't want them to be. Absolutely. And I'll talk more about where that's coming from and how that kind of maps on to some medieval material. Grant grows up and he's what, like 10-ish? Somewhere between seven and 10. Yeah. You know, he's he's not an adult, but he's like, you know, has like a personality. I'm sure I'm sure I'm ah. sure younger children have personalities. He's right. He, he, are he and Dylan the same age? Gren is bigger. And I don't know if that's because he's older or just because he's bigger. I think between seven and ten is what we're going to have to stick with. Yes. Gren goes older and he's curious about these people and Harriet who have like, you know, all of these like lights and this and, you know, homes and uh, toys and all of that. And he finds it very interesting. Because they made the homes in such a way that the back, which backs onto the mountain where they're hiding, is totally made of glass. See into these houses. Yes. Ren's looking into these houses and seeing the way that these other people live. And his mother is kind of trying to convince him that they're evil, that they're monstrous, that they're going to hurt him. They're going to eat him. And he doesn't entirely buy into that or that they're going to kill her. I think at some point he basically, she basically says to him as a way to keep him from, yeah, that she says like, do you want them to kill your mommy? Not her parenting moment. No, I'm not sure in general she's an extremely good parent, although she is a loving parent. See, that's another (laughs) one of these. Nothing is binary. You can be Mm -hmm. a loving parent and be like a really lousy one because of your own issues. Right, right. And she has untreated PTSD is, is, you know, very, very clear clear and uh, it's not entirely surprising that that leaves you in a position where you're not necessarily treating your loved ones in the way that it might be best to treat them right because they never come out of their hiding place except for that one right like Gren's never met another human and they they don't have real food they trap cats that escape they're they're catching a Siamese cat Carmen Carmen, (laughs) sorry didn't mean to say it so loud This does not actually dissuade Gren, who does end up going down and meets this boy, Dylan. Dylan is the son of Roger Herrett. This is obviously, you know, I'll talk more about Beowulf later, but I'm just going to, you know, note like the names. Roger Herrett is our Hrothgar figure and his wife, Willa, is our Wilfiao figure. Herrett is his last name and this whole, the whole gated community is Herrett Hall. I think the entire community, including the mountain. Yeah. Everything they have taken over. I mean, it's also, as I said, very clear that like it's a gated community that, that essentially it's kind of set up in such a way that except for people who are kind of coming down from the mountains like Dana, that you don't have access to as somebody who's not a member of the community or a friend of the member of the community. Willa is the other kind of main perspective I would say that we get at this point. And uh, Willa had previously been very, very briefly married to like some sexy rock star. And uh, her mother then uh, popped up, dragged her home. I think like what forced an abortion? Dragged her to the abortionist. Dragged her to the guy who removes tattoos. Right, because she had to a tattoo of this guy's name, and then immediately manages to set her up on a date with Roger, who is of course the heir to this whole, I guess, like real estate empire, essentially. Right. Okay. And he's a plastic surgeon for women. 
Right. Yeah. He's a plastic surgeon. But yeah, I mean, because they must basically just own all of this property, essentially, and all of these people must essentially kind of have bought it from them. Like, they, I mean, they Absolutely. clearly have some kind of controlling interest in the land or the community. They own, like, they must, they own it outright. Yeah. He owns it outright. His father right. developed it with the help of the mothers. Right. I mean, I don't know what's happening in terms of the other houses, if people are actually homeowners and how that were, or if it's they like a They buy it system. from them. They buy it yes. from them. That comes up later. That the that right. are selling like fruitcakes, firecrackers. Yes. Whatever. They must just own all the land. And so then obviously, you know, they sell the houses and then other people could buy the houses and then presumably resell them. But any part of the property in which there is not currently a house, they still own that. So she's now married to Roger. The philanderer. Yeah, we find out relatively quickly that Roger is cheating on her with uh, with a neighbor, Louisa, and uh, that Willa basically hates her life and also is, uh, you know, I mean, she's like, she clearly drinks too much. She's clearly on too much like prescription medication that she probably shouldn't be on and also probably shouldn't be taking with as much alcohol as she's taking it with she seems to also be secretly taking birth control pills right yes and there's this whole thing about that she had this either miscarriage or abortion we're not entirely sure which unclear and yeah it's eating it real eating issues yes like eating issues most normal people don't pretend they're eating a mouse no most normal people don't pretend that they're eating a mouse <laughs> Like, she spends a lot of time thinking about food that she's clearly not eating in general, also. She's transgressive in food ways, in such strange ways. She takes in yes. the freezer compartment at the grocery, and they eat ice cream with their fingers out of the freezer and then put it back. Ew. And she thinks it's funny that people will then buy it and open it and see their fingerprints. Yeah, it's a... It's not, it's not charming. I'd say it's not her best moment, but honestly, so ah. few are that like, <laughs> you know. Certainly not her worst, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gren and Dylan have met and uh, Gren's been like let into the house. And uh, this is one of the other moves that we don't know if Gren is somehow like monstrous or not, is that they keep finding like claws or like, or like, and like claw marks on things. So like. They're not getting some... manicures. Right. I mean, is it just really that he has like extremely long nails and that like piano keys are very sensitive? It must be very useful if you have to scrape the fins off of fish, not to cut your nails short. It must be very useful right. if you're living as a, you know, survivalist. Right. Yeah. I think that's what the claw marks are. That they're just overgrown because it's easier and more helpful. Right. So they just have these like extremely long nails, but it's uh, is what it, I think ultimately is. But yeah, but it's presented in such a way that you think that, that it certainly will uh, interprets right. them as this kind of animal markings. And, uh, you know, as the reader, we don't necessarily know which they are either. But then you get some interesting scenes where you have these animals clawing at the ivory piano keys. But yeah. Has already thought how disgusting it is to have ivory piano keys. Yeah. Real monsters yeah. are the people who kill the elephants for their, mm -hmm. make the pianos. So everything is entwined. Based on this, she calls the police and specifically calls Ben Wolf, a name that I struggle with. It's bad. It's bad. You know, don't get me wrong. I think a lot of things about this book are great. The names occasionally I found distracting. Bet ben Wolf in one. particular. I bet you missed the best name. Which one? Willa's maiden name. Oh, I don't remember what it is. What is it? It's Noel. N-O-W-E-L-L. -L. The original Beowulf Codex, the Noel 
Codex. Oh, huh. See, that actually is clever. That actually it's I like. It's very clever and very sneaky. That one I like. Isn't that nice? That's yeah. The only thing, I know two things that you don't know for this year, <laughs> and that is one of them. She gets Ben Wolf in, who looks around. It does have two O's. Yes. So you know he's not Jewish. <laughs> no, I think Leonard Wolf is Virginia Wolf's has two O's. Oh, that is two O's? Oh, I okay. just meant it's not Wolf. Right. That's not W-U-L-F, at least, right? right? Ben comes and kind of looks around. Uh, he clearly kind of has the hots for her and vice versa, but not actually any, nothing actually happens at that point. And uh, he also kind of dismisses her as like probably imagining things. There's a house party for, I guess, New Year's. We've passed Christmas. It's New Year's. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, there's also like Christmas is like, kind of a mess. There's a bit with the rabbit was what happened Christmas on Christmas. Present. Ren drops off a Christmas present for Dylan, which is like a rabbit that he's killed. I was trying to figure out if there's a religious significance to all this action taking place over Christmas. And I finally figured out it's not. It's that's when everything is lit up and you can see everything. Yeah. That's all it is. It has lights. It's the lights and it's in general also the kind of festive holiday season that it's a time when there would be like singing going on. Right, right, right. You know, I said I was going to try to use that reference to the poem, but that is actually the whole thing in the poem is that Grendel is attracted by the the kind of singing and merrymaking. Attracted and infuriated. Yes, I mean, it's a very different dynamic in terms of what's actually happening, but that, that to some extent is what sort of sets him off, and that's also true here, albeit in a very different way. Right. <laughs> so I think that's it, is that it's this kind of time when things are, like, vocally festive in a way that in 21st century America, they're not in an everyday way. Mm-hmm. At least not if you're talking about, like, people's homes as opposed to, like, the bars which a 10-year-old hopefully is not going to. It's certainly not true in this community. Right, yes. I think, yeah, that's really why it's, yeah, Christmas and then New Year's is that basically this is when this community has, like, a bunch of parties. Dylan increasing also, there seem to be behavioral issues, which, you know, are probably related to the fact that he has terrible parents because his mother is this, like, alcoholic who ignores him and his father is an asshole who also ignores him. She seems to have a really deep-rooted hatred and resentment that little boy. Yes, she does. Already when he's very, very young. And it's not clear. I mean, to some extent, I'm assuming that to some extent, it's really about despite the fact that this is what she is supposed to want in terms of her life and her marriage, it actually isn't. Right. She really didn't get anything she wanted. Well, it seems like the only thing she seems to enjoy at all is like having sex with her husband in like a slightly maybe like voyeuristic, like, I hope everybody can see us having sex out the window way. Right. Right, right, right. And he's like at best a distraction from that. They finally have this New Year's Eve party. Gren, I guess, shows up to hang out with Dylan. Dana realizes he's there and is freaking out and goes to try and find him. Dana thinks that they've killed Gren at some point. They've actually killed a bear. Well, Roger fires a gun and something falls down. Yes. Well, because I think Willa lies and says she has a gun. Dana, that Dana has a gun. I think that's later, but it doesn't matter. No, I think that it was here. It was in this, it was in this scene because that's why Roger freaks out is because oh, okay. it's uh yeah, that Roger freaks out because she says, no, this woman had a gun. But she was in the house first. They met her. So she Roger comes gave looking her for 20 the kid. bucks. 
Yeah, so she comes, she looks for the kid, and she can't find him, and then I guess she leaves. Then I guess Willa sort of starts freaking out and thinking that she's seen various That's things right. that she didn't right, right, actually right, right, right. see. Well, she did. She did have a gun. Oh, did she have a gun at that point? I, I think so. Well, okay. She did have a gun, but Willa is not actually sure that she had a gun. Right. Is a, she can't trust her perceptions either. Right, and that's why I'm saying Willa is lying. It's very clear that Willa is saying she has a gun and isn't actually clear even in okay. her own head about whether she really had a gun or not. So the fact mm-hmm. that she did is to some extent irrelevant. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Roger goes after her and shoots what turns out to be a bear. Dana thinks that he killed Gren and Dana kills him like with a sword. A sword that she found in the mirror. Yes, a sword that she found in the mirror. (laughs) And yeah, so she kills Roger at this party and they eventually, but you know, kind of takes off. Dylan pulls this whole thing where he like swallows a toy Like, as a distraction, basically. I think so. A king. A king. He swallows a king. Yes, swallows this plastic king. I I remember I found, like, finding this scene, like, a very, like, confusing in terms of all that's happening at any given moment. So I might be kind of getting some aspects of the details wrong. But eventually, basically, it it obviously turns out that Gren isn't dead. So he, he swallows the king. And it's, like, a little hard for him to breathe. So his mother goes and pries his mouth open. And push Mm -hmm. King farther down his throat. Yes. Yes. And he swallows it. Yeah. And then somebody rescues him. He's gone. I think he runs away. I think he and Gren run away. away And meets and Gren somehow. Yeah. And runs to the cave where Gren is. Dana, who has been injured, comes too. And she's got both of the boys now. Because this is when she's shot. So she was shot in the arm and eventually Gren has to. In this scene or later. I see it's very confused. There are so many violent scenes. Right. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth, so it happens a little bit later, but it is in this scene that she's shot. And so then, like, later in this whole episode, it's when Dylan is still with them that Gren has to amputate her arm, that he has to cut cut her arm off because it's become infected. Sepsis. Yeah, that she can tell it's become infected and that he has to just cut it off. I am going to interpolate one thing. Both she Mm -hmm. and Ben Wolf are veterans of the same war. Yes. And they keep saying things like, and I can't even remember which one said them. I think it's him, actually, that you don't want to die of that kind of infected Mm -hmm. The way you want to die is it snows and you shut your eyes Mm -hmm. and that's this. But this is a bad death. And I think he's the one that thinks that. So it's Mm -hmm. weird because they... At right. or on the same side, they, they didn't, don't deal with it the same way and didn't deal mm-hmm. with it the same way at the time. But it's clear that they in some ways have somewhat similar mindsets as both veterans who probably both actually have PTSD. And have an odd connection that obviously yes. bring them closer together. But Right. So she's got all of these children and no arm. She- <laughs> She has two children and one arm. Two children, one arm. Stop. This is not a funny book. I, I know, I know. It's funny to say all the podcasts I've listened to, you and your guests are just laughing and laughing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to laugh about. No, this is not a very funny one. No, the the two children, one arm is about the funniest I've got. It's really not very funny. No, it's not at all funny. Remember, she does talk much, much earlier in the book about whether the amputated or just 
blown up limbs of people live as ghosts someplace. Right. Because we haven't actually talked about this woman who she describes as a saint, this woman who has like a candle between her breasts. That's clearly this kind of ghost that she's seeing, but that it's somebody who first she, I think, must have encountered who then very shortly after died. In the hospital. And she had no legs. Yeah, and who I think talked about feeling the ghost of her legs. Yeah. Right. That, yeah, is very much also a a theme, an underlying theme here. Meanwhile, Roger's dead. Willa is fucking Ben Wolf, and I find it fascinating how many Beowulf adaptations feel the need to introduce a sexual tension between the Beowulf figure and the Wealthyow figure that I think is nowhere in the poem. It's not, but it actually makes sense. I've, I've listened to your podcast on the movie where it seems utterly bizarre. In the book, it makes sense to me. In this book, it makes sense to me. In this book, it specifically, yes, it makes sense. Because one way or another... Her mother would not have allowed her to remain single, so at least it's nice she right. had her own choice. Right, exactly. And that seems to be very much what it is, is that basically it's like, well, I have to take control of things. And that's increasing, I would say, Willa's arc as Willa wanting to exert control over circumstances that she did not previously have. And that she likes the sex. It seems to be very good sex. That too, yeah. <laughs> In crappy motels. Right. Garbage places. Yes, she really likes sex in crappy hotels. <laughs> She's sleeping with him. Between her sleeping with him and the assorted mothers being hostile, they're sort of pressuring Ben and the police to actually do something about finding Dana and rescuing Dylan. So which is part actually about a rescue of a child who might at least be alive. But I would say it's mostly about vengeance for the death of Roger. I don't know. The whole problem with, well, there are any number of problems. One of them is the whole problem with Dana whether the mothers and they change back and forth whether she's a monster or she's a warrior that they want to emulate right and i think they send ben wolf after her basically to get rid of ben wolf right and that i think is also one of the really interesting things about the women in this poem is that a lot of the women in the poem are trying to kind of do this move where they're trying to kind of emulate in theory, this kind of aggressive warrior style, but without actually doing that in a kind of physical way as opposed to a metaphorical way. Yes, I think that's true. But I think they think that what they're doing is essentially similar, but in a different kind of universe. Well, I think that it is, is because I think ultimately one of the things that the poem is saying is that the the aggressive and problematic violence isn't even actually the act of uh, being able to shoot, stab, etc. What makes it this kind of aggressive, uh, problematic violence is the way in which it's used to exert control on the world over the world around you and the other people around you. I mean, I hate blaming mothers, obviously, but Willa's mother has done terrible things to her. Oh, yes. I oh, mean, yes. The, as a little girl, she had a nightmare and she goes to her mother and says, Mommy, I have a nightmare. This is normal behavior. And the mother says, if you ever come to me again in the middle of the night to tell me about a nightmare, I'm going to tie you to your bed. Right. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that does to a child. Yeah. How it helps yeah. their entire life. Yeah. But I think we need to say something about the mothers in general. The mother's function. Yes in this novel as a sort of a chorus. 
Right. So they talk about basically grown women in general and how they do exert control of their lives, of their husbands, of mm-hmm. around them. Right. And how they hide things. That was the interesting thing. And the things they congratulate themselves for. We never pushed our husbands down the stairs. We never put poison in their food. I mean, why bother once they're six? Oh, actually, the way I was reading that is that they were saying, obviously, we didn't do that. And they definitely at some point did. Oh, I did that with the opposite one. Because they also say we never had broken jaws. Uh, you know, nobody ever twisted our arm till it broke. And that's what I thought they were hiding, that there was domestic violence. I think it's both. You're right. If it's one, it's got to be both. I think in general, the things that they say, like, this never happened, I think all of those things are things that have happened and that they know about and that they're saying they didn't happen because they are secrets. But it's this, quote, chorus of them. The mothers are Roger's mother and, well, I don't know if she's really his mother since I think she's his father's third wife, but be that as it may. We call her Roger's mother. I think she is. And Willa's mother and their various friends. And they, yes. they function as a chorus and tell us all these things about mm-hmm. being a woman and being a woman in this particular society and great stuff. And it's really interesting also to see the way in which their choices are also really influential in terms of the kind of shaping of this community, including the kind of switch of allegiance that they have when they realize that Roger is cheating, not because he's cheating, but because it's not allowed to cheat with one of the other wives in the community. If you cheat, you do that in the city. Right, right. (laughs) Don't stick your inkwell into your own whatever that thing. Uh, Right, yeah. That, you know, you you stay in the city and you fuck your secretary, you don't sleep with your neighbor. But that's who, and that's who Tina was, his secretary. And they didn't like yes. that either, because who wants to oh, no. Terry? <laughs> well, they're fine with him, but them sleeping with the secretary. Right, but not marrying and them and making yeah, exactly. them the boss. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all about, it's all about sort of ideas about class and what you're allowed to do where, right? I mean, it's that you, you don't fuck right. the other women in the community. You fuck like the women in the city who are like lower status in some ways, but you also, you do not marry them. Right, I'm not even sure that's, always class so much as we all live here we're together take right it's someplace else i mean though it's insider it's insider outsider i think right and so there's a kind of sense in which you know willa is more sympathetic because of the fact that roger is breaking the rules because her mother is so awful because her husband is so awful well the mothers are awful ben goes after dana etc and finds Dylan and also finds Dana's arm, which he brings back and claims to have killed Dana and Gren. I, I'm sorry. I'm just sitting here just so appalled at Ben Wolf. He's so awful. He's a liar. He's a coward. He's a murderer. Oh, yeah. No, he's awful. There's also just like a lot. Like Willa gives uh, Louisa, her husband's mistress, some tea and forces her to miscarry. And then she gets like sent off somewhere by her husband. Her husband, her husband throws her out. Yeah, she gave her something in her teeth. And Diane, I think, just straight up murders Tina. Like her mother just I murders disagree. Roger's mother. No, I, really? don't, I don't think that's true. What oh, I, I do. I happened. think she like pulled her plug. No, I think on the life support. had cancer and was in a, a lot of pain. And it was basically a assisted suicide with permission. I think I... I think oh that's not how I read that I read it as uh, certainly she was probably about to die but that I didn't interpret Diane's hastening of it as uh, 
charitable as opposed to uh, wanting to kind of hurry things up and getting her daughter like full control over everything. I don't think she needed it to do the stuff they were doing. The mothers had taken control anyway. At any rate, then it's then it's just unclear. But I was pretty sure. They don't say. They just say she was there and who knows what happened and if anything was in the tea. Right. So she's she certainly is somehow involved in her death. It's not clear to what extent right. Tina was No, I thought that was that or not. I was heroic, but who knows? I was not a, uh, interpreting it quite so altruistically. Right. Willa and Ben get married. They've got twins. She's pregnant. She's pregnant like at the, she's pregnant like at Roger's funeral. Everybody's, everybody's fucking pregnant at Roger's funeral. <laughs> because Louisa's, Louisa's pregnant. She, she's pregnant. Every, it's like Roger's funeral just like filled with pregnant ladies. <laughs> With, you know, the one not his wife pregnant with his child and his wife pregnant with somebody else's. So she's pregnant, I guess, from like, you know, they're like seedy motel sex already. They get married fast. Dylan is not here for it, which fair, because Ben Wolf sounds awful. They sent him off to boarding school. Well, but even before then it talks about, so they get married. He swallowed the ring. He was supposed to be ring bearer and then he just like ah, swallowed ah, the ring ah. to be an asshole. <laughs> Obviously, you know, they eventually get married. I think he has like a couple of behavioral problems and like within a couple of months, they ship him off to boarding school. As opposed to Ben's behavioral problems where he drowned a kid when he was that age. Yup. There's also, by the way, a lot of hints about, and I don't think Willa knows the thing, I think only Ben knows this, that there's also something a little off about the kids and about their, about the twins, that like there's this bit that like, they clearly like just like beat up some kid at school for no reason or something. Well, it's also getting back into the whole, are you a monster? Are you a human thing? Ben is very hairy. Yes. And there's this whole thing about whether to use depilatories or this or this, this or this to sort of smooth himself out. And the twins are born with hair filing down their spines. (laughs) Right. Which clearly has this kind of hint at monstrosity. I have no idea if it's actually a real thing that children are sometimes born with hair on their spines. I'm sure it's like Ren and his teeth. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's happened. But I know certainly babies are born with hair on their heads sometimes. Like sometimes they are. Right. And sometimes I, they I don't know the, I, the answer. It's one of the things I did not Google. I would think it happens. Ben also is uh, an orphan who was, or not, well, not necessarily an orphan, but he was abandoned at an orphanage. Yeah, he's a foundling. They threw, they dumped him. Yeah, so he, yeah, so his parents or somebody, yeah, ditched him in front of, you know, at the, you know, gates of an orphanage. So I think there is this kind of undercurrent of, uh, is there something that's kind of wrong or monstrous about him that led to that? And that's also coming out in his children. But also it's something that, again, it's unreliable. Is this just his own kind of personal anxieties and hangups? Or are we meant to think that there's something off about him in some ways? You know, the more we talk, the more it seems obvious, whether it was done purposefully or not, that you can get rid of Beowulf, you can get rid of monsters and say, this is a book about parenting. Which I think actually is a really interesting choice because I don't think that's actually true of uh, Beowulf the epic and it's something in uh, at least not overtly and I think uh, that's actually something that that... Yeah, it is actually. All the stuff about, and it's obviously true for all of European history, all the stuff about fathers 
giving their waters to their enemies. Peace Weaver is an old English person for the women who were given. And obviously that's all through of European history. Yeah. Where are your daughters to? And there's all this stuff about the mothers in Beowulf saying, hey, Beowulf, do this or don't do this so that nobody will murder my sons. Right, that Wealthy House says that to him and it obviously doesn't work out and somebody does murder her sons. Right, but I, over and over you have a parent either mourning a child or controlling the child or trying to control somebody else to save them. There's a lot of parenting in the poem too. There is. There's certainly an interest in kind of family and kinship and your uh, kind of responsibilities there. And I think that it's a kind of theme that's there. I think she makes it more overt in some of the choices that she makes in her translation. And also it's much more overt and deliberate in The Mere Wife than I think it is in Beowulf. But since I'm also reading Medea, I've got parenting on my mind. (laughs) Yeah, that's another uh, example of maybe some not great parenting. But it's really huge here. Yes. I think it's maybe a kind of subtle sub-theme in Beowulf that she really brings out and brings to the forefront in this novel is what I would say. And I think also there is this thing in this poem as well about, and I think this is actually also in Beowulf, is this uh, kind of theme about lineage and the importance of lineage and kind of having a son to carry on your legacy and what that means. You think that's in the novel? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that actually is something that's kind of coming out in terms of the concerns that people have about basically like who comes after me. Oh, okay. No, I meant in the novel. For me, that's coming up in terms of like specifically how Ben Wolf thinks about his family situation. Well, he doesn't want his kids to be arrested. <laughs> right. Dylan's run away from boarding school, which Willa is very dismissive of because she assumes that it's just because he's coming to basically like wreck the opening of the Herit Heritage Station. But when she's on the phone waiting to be trained to the headmaster, she has all these fantasies about a dead kid. Yes, she imagines he's committed suicide. Goes on and on for like two pages. She's fantasizing Uh that he's dead. Specifically, like her immediate thought is suicide. And she has this whole kind of fantasy set up about him having killed himself. I really don't understand her lack of love for him. I just, I don't get it. Oh yeah, she hates this kid. Don't get it. He seems like a lovely child. I understand a certain kind of woman, and you're sort of set up for this, that don't want to get pregnant and have a baby because it's, you know, it's it's bad for your, for your body in numerous ways. Mm-hmm. But nothing happened to her body. So I don't understand the- Well, yeah, because then she like went and like only ate protein bars for 10 years. Well, the mothers talked her into that, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it all is like, I, I see it as really being kind of symbolic of her lack of kind of control and say in her life. that she didn't want to have a child and be in this life with this person and he's and you can't control a child that way and 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 the whole thing about that he does nothing he managed to sleep through the kid's first three years (laughs) right and anything the kid does he she gets blamed for it So obviously a lot of the self-image has been ruined Mm -hmm. by how her husband has treated her vis-a-vis kid. I think Dylan is symbolic to her of her unhappy marriage. 
Yes. And life. And she thinks about that when she sees him and she doesn't think about him as a person. Right. She's in the process of building this like Herit heritage station and uh, that they're kind of doing this whole display set up. Dana at some point ends you mean up the in the train there. station. The train station. We haven't talked about the train station. Yeah. So, well, she's building this basically like fancy train station. And well, she's there was it's a basically, train I guess it was station. like, yes, it was an abandoned train station and they're. I guess restoring it. Oh, it looks to be an and rebuilding it. Train station because they used to have yeah. things to the city. Yes, you know, so people could commute for work. But it it sounds gorgeous. It's got all this stained glass. It reminded me of Grand Central. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, it absolutely stunning. And they're like restoring and rebuilding it. Right. But also what they've done is because as we mentioned before, this gated community is built on top of this town that Dana grew up in. And they've literally like taken things that they found in this town, like in including the cemetery. Like there's a goblet that Dana recognizes that's buried with her mother. They They destroyed the cemetery. And these objects that they found are now basically in these display cases in the train station. Dana is in the train station with Gren, who's decided to go off and look for Dylan. And she's trying to say that this is evidence that these people are evil and wrong and in some way monstrous, that they've built this thing on the bones of my family and are bragging about that essentially by kind of taking these spoils of their grave, of, you know, their grave goods and uh, displaying them in this museum. And the interesting thing is the mothers got that done so nobody would accuse them of despoiling a graveyard, which is clearly what they did. They paid a lot of right. bribes. Yes. Which they seem proud of. Dana is trying to therefore kind of use this to convince uh, Gren that he doesn't want anything to do with these people. Gren instead kind of very much feels like she has ultimately really kind of ruined his life. He just says over and over, it's totally heartbreaking. You made me think I was a monster and I am not a monster. You tried to make me one and you have ruined my life. Yes, which is, it's incredibly sad and it's heartbreaking. She did do that and she didn't do that on purpose. She did do it on purpose. She didn't do it. I mean, she did. It's something that was very much clearly kind of coming out of her, of her mental health issues and her anxieties about what other people saw when they saw a gran, but which are ultimately not reality. But she is the only person, I think, who ends up with some self-knowledge. Yes. At some point she says, I thought I was hiding here to protect my son, but was I really hiding here to protect Mm -hmm. myself? Yeah. And she does, even without knowing anything about whether he's a monster or a boy, and all little boys are little boys, no matter if they look like monsters. Mm-hmm. She understands, I think she did the wrong thing. It's so sad. Yeah. I mean, so really it's her and the boys who have uh, this kind of self-awareness. I mean, the scene with the boys is beautiful. Dylan's escaped from boarding school and Gren's on off to go and find him and they find each other while swimming. One is swimming, one's on the bridge. And yes. Down and you don't know whether he's yeah. outside or he's seen his friend. <laughs> yes. Dylan actually has like a tattoo of Gren or of himself and Gren and Dana. And Gren has been painting, that's the wrong word, creating these pictures on the walls of the cave they're hiding in. He had one of him and then one of his friend and then he drew their hands touching. 
beautiful. And that's actually also like one of the other interesting moves is that Gren just picked himself as a blur. Yeah, though I think that's a tiny bit contrived, so we won't know if he's a boy or a monster. Yes, but I think it is also indicative of the fact that, as he says to his mother, that you made me think I was a monster. Right. I think that he, because of this, of what his mother has done in his upbringing, I think he has a warped self-perception. And then the worst thing is that Ben finds the cave and obliterates a lifetime of Gren's paintings on the cave paintings. Yeah. He's so disgusting. Oh yeah, no, he's the absolute worst. The boys find each other and they admit that they've always loved each other and they kiss and it's really very nice. It is a lovely scene. It's a lovely scene for any number of reasons. You don't always see gay relationships Mm -hmm. in novels that are not about that. Right. It's just so nice to see love. That's the only real love in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's the only real love that's not in some way tainted, at least. I would hesitate to say that I, I think there is real love that obviously Dana has for her son. Oh, okay. But the other thing is, it goes back to who Ren's father is. And Dana has, I think twice it recurs that maybe she had a lover. Mm-hmm. And But she keeps saying she doesn't know. She doesn't know if that's a mm-hmm. memory or she saw it in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I think she wants to think he came from love and she has no idea. Yeah, and no, I think she really doesn't remember. But even though the she obviously loves her son, her son obviously loves her, but the relationship is always fraught. Yeah. With what she can't give him, what he wants. The, the love between the two boys seems much more pure. Right, and because I'm struggling to find the exact kind of vocabulary for it, because I think, you know, it is ultimately, there really are these kind of mental health issues that have really made her not able to give her son the life that he should or could have had. What I meant by pure, that it's not adulterated with anybody's past mm-hmm. emotional garbage. There's an astonishing kind of lack of emotional baggage that's affecting the relationship despite the Mm -hmm. fact that they clearly have actually good reason to both have a lot of emotional baggage because both have really weird relationships their mothers right so that that's that's what i meant by pure but no i mean it is a really beautiful relationship i think the only thing that i i mean you know the only thing i will say about it ultimately is that it is unfortunately something of a trope that a lot of gay romances end tragically everybody's life ends tragically that is the one thing that i would say kind of in favor of this not being a kind of pure representation of that trope is that it's not like anybody else turns out any better right the two of them are together and dana while she's still in the station Ben Wolf shows up and they're fighting. And while this is happening, I guess the boys show up and Dylan actually stabs Ben at the neck and then the boys take off. I thought that's when she and Gren take off and leave Dylan. Because he's, no. he's about to kill somebody and Gren says run. And she and Gren run and leave Dylan. That's after. The cave. That's a different. No, that's later. That Because they, they're, they're um, in the house. 
Because remember, oh. Dylan and Gren then run and Ben must run after them. But remember, it's Willa who kills Dylan in their home. It's, it's a little, yeah. I don't remember the exact this happens, then this happens. But yes. But yeah, so that the boys both run to the house. And Willa, she's like on a bunch of drugs, you know, on like some sleeping pills or something. And not an excuse. Oh, no, I was going to say allegedly thinks that she is stabbing a monster slash Gren and is actually killing her own child. Oh, I don't believe any allegedly about it. Well, that's why I'm using the word allegedly is that that's what the kind of claim is made. And I don't think that that's true. I think she knows what she's doing. That's exactly what she's, knows doing. what she's doing. What's not clear is whether she actually cuts out his heart. I don't think she does. <laughs> oh, but she certainly kills him and then blames Ben. Yeah, Ben gets the short. For having snapped. But I don't care. Oh, no, I mean, he's so unlikable that it's hard to feel so bad for That it's hard to feel bad for him. But she in some ways, I actually think she in some ways is worse. But it's the mothers too, because the mothers come. They wipe her fingerprints off the knife. Yes. And then they say, find Ben Wolf the monster. He killed our grandson. Yes. And they know he didn't. Yeah, they close ranks, right? Willa is one of theirs and Ben isn't. For a time. They are at the funeral for Dylan. Dana and Gren decide that they're going to go and exact vengeance. Which they do with Dana, at least, I think, knowing there's a good chance they're all going to die. That's Gwen's decision. Yes, and she agrees to help him. Right. But yes, that's very much Gwen's decision that he says that he has to do this. And I think he says, kind of, make me a warrior like you or something. Or make me a soldier. They go and at the funeral, they're at the funeral. Ben also arrives at the funeral. And the police are looking for him. Right, because they think that he murdered Dylan. He kills Gwen, at which point everybody very clearly realizes that he's only a boy. You can say killed. Do not forget that he cut off the child's head. Yes. Holds it up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that he's kind of very much kind of doing this kind of like trophy display thing with the body of a child, which obviously everybody is horrified to see. Willa, I don't think we've mentioned for, I guess, since basically like this party has been wearing this like watch with a dragon on it. A present from her husband that costs more than a car. First of Right. That she yes. But she's kind of kept wearing it. And uh, there is this moment in which she really kind of sees herself as like turning into a dragon. And I'll talk more about the relationship between Willa and the dragon in a moment. But that she's that she is kind of functioning as the dragon figure from the poem. We've left out that somehow they've reopened this station and there's Mm -hmm. to be the maiden train ride of this ultra fancy schmancy, which seems to be the same day as the funeral because they're going to take Dylan in his coffin on the train. Well, because that's actually what was going to happen, right? So, okay, so they're going to have this inaugural thing and then she gets this call that Dylan escaped from boarding school and she assumes that Dylan has come to fuck with the train event to embarrass her. Right. He dies and then she basically says, cool, I'm going to combine events and it'll be very (laughs) fancy and then I'm going to run for office. <laughs> and I mean, you know, her really taking control over her life in this way would be like admirable <laughs> if she wasn't so disgusting. Right. <laughs> and so that's what it is, is that she's like melding the events. And so she's got like the whole thing basically set up already, except for the coffin. And I think she has to change the color of the balloons. Yeah, she has to like switch. To it. She has to like 
<laughs> yeah, she's got to like switch out two or three things to black, buy a coffin, and then otherwise she's basically just said, like has the same fucking event. Like she probably didn't even bother calling the caterer. I don't think she would have to. No, I'm sure it's the same, the same food. Though frankly, I'm glad she has a caterer. It really bothered me with as much money as she had that she was cooking all the hors d'oeuvres for all those parties. Yeah, well, it was bizarre that she was doing all that cooking. Blinis the size of your thumbnail? Who makes a blini the size of your thumbnail? Especially because you clearly hated it. Right. The mothers basically, like, at this point, just decide to just fucking ditch and uh, give up Willa, who they, you know, assume who they, you know, is gets arrested. They assume Ben is also getting arrested because they haven't actually, in their testimony, they have not apparently actually let Ben off. Well, I guess they've also seen him murder Gren, so maybe that's why. I don't know. Yeah, they're going after Ben for Gren's murder. Ben runs off and is still holding Gren's corpse or his And he's a mess. He's bloody. Yeah. He looks terrible. Dana somehow ends up driving the train, which the mothers are all on. She's right. in the back. The mothers are all on the train. Dana's driving the train. Very fast. And she drives the train into Ben and then like off the, and then like off the mountain. Off the bridge, yeah. Well, it's a bridge on the mountain, on a mountain. Yeah. So like everybody dies except for Willa who's in prison. Which I find bizarre. Why Headley left Willa as the only person standing? Right. I don't understand that as, as, as a thematic and I don't understand why Will is alive. Everybody else is dead. Maybe it's because the last person standing in Beowulf is also somebody whose name begins with W. Well, yeah, but in so far as she stands for Rothgar's wife, we have no idea what happened to her. No, we don't. But I'm just saying thematically, and I'm fine with her going to jail, though frankly, uh-huh. she's going to get off. There's no, absolutely no proof she killed Dylan since the mothers erased her fingerprints from the knife. So she's actually going to get out of jail. There's not a chance in hell. But she- also it's only, they're relying on their witness testimony, which is now, which they're not going to give in a court of law because they're dead. Right. So she really, I think, is is the sole survivor. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly the point of that, especially because, uh, I mean, to the extent that she represents the dragon, I mean, the dragon kills Beowulf, but doesn't survive. The dragon dies too. Yeah. I've been trying since the first time I read this to figure out what the thematic, psychological, literary point of having Willa alive when nobody else is. Yeah. Maybe it'll come to me, but I haven't been able to figure it out. I don't know. It is interesting, though, the extent to which Willa really has in some ways revealed herself as to some extent this kind of survivor in part because of her adaptability that she, as much as she often hates it, keeps adapting and switching to all of these different circumstances in a way that no other character, I think, really does. Okay, so it's the chameleon-like need to survive and a belief that she's going to. So I think it is that. I don't think I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with Beowulf, but I think it in some ways actually does make sense internally to the near wife for Willa's character. Well, I wish her will. <laughs> do you? I'm not sure I do. Well, let's see. I, I really don't see how they can convict her. And then she still owns Heron Hall. She owns everything. I mean, I think she'll be fine. I'm not sure I wish her well. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about Willow. Right. It's not like she doesn't have some version of trauma. Yes. It's obviously not normal to kill your kid and cut his heart out. This is this is not normal behavior. No, I mean, I... 
actually think that what potentially should happen is I actually think that she should be put into a psychiatric ward. And then you obviously walk out when they clean her up from all these meds that she's on. Give her right. Therapy. Her mother's dead. She doesn't have to deal with that. But, you know, but it is ultimately the case that, well, on the one hand, uh, she obviously experienced a lot of trauma. There are other people who experience trauma and don't murder their children. Okay, I'm obviously jumping forward. But if this were a movie and pretty much the next and the last thing you see is Willa being led away by the police, what is the look on her face? Grief? Wink, I'm going to get out of this? Despair? What is it? I mean, that's the thing is that the look I envision is very much the like blank politician's look. Okay, and the wink, I, the, the look I see is I am going to get out of this and I'm going to have a new stage in life and there is nobody around who can tell me what to do. And so as I said, I envision this kind of blank look on her face because she's not going to give anything away either to the people around her or to the audience. And I see smug self-satisfaction because she knows she's going to get away with everything. I think she probably does, but I think that she <laughs> wouldn't. I think I think you're right, but I think she wouldn't let it show on her face. Okay. I actually think that her letting people see that is not consonant with her character okay we'll see so at this point i think we can move on to the next segment the vera at falso which i'm going to do something a little bit different with than normal since of course you know this is a modernized adaptation so the ordinary historical quibbles i might do i am obviously not doing what i wanted to talk about is some things that echo the medieval past versus some things that are clearly just entirely modern and in particular how this is kind of relating to beowulf i first did want to mention very briefly the interesting non-Beowulf medieval referent here, which is this line that Dana repeats a number of times that she says, all is well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. I'm reading this and at some point it hit me, and this was on the first read, that this comes from the writings of Juliet of Norwich, who is a woman mystic and an anchoress who, in some ways like Dana, in fact, lived in like a self-imposed isolation where she experienced these divine revelations, which she then wrote down in her vernacular in Middle English. And one of the things that's actually really unusual about Julian is that a lot of the women mystics we have uh, their revelations written down, but a lot of them are written down as told to their male confessors, who are then the ones actually doing the writing, whereas Julian seems to have written them down herself. And so she lived basically her whole life in Norwich, born in 1343 and died in 1416. And we actually don't know what her real name is. She was known as Julian, but that seems to have been because she was attached to St. Julian's Church and not because her name was actually by birth Julian. That's just a fun little medieval fact. So now let's talk Beowulf, the obvious uh, reference point. I'll do just a very quick summary of how Beowulf works for anyone who is not familiar. King Hrothgar builds this hall, Herit, but the sounds of merrymaking attract slash disturb Grendel, who is a monstrous creature that is described as a descendant of Cain. And worth noting, it actually does not ever indicate clearly on which side or if on both sides uh, he is descended from Cain. Right. Because they have this guy who keeps showing up at their feasts and murdering people, they like stop having feasts and are living in fear of Grendel. Beowulf then shows up and says, I'll kill your monster. And after an evening of feasting and song, Grendel then arrives. Beowulf makes the choice to fight him unarmed and does so successfully and rips off his arm. Grendel then slinks away to die. 
and his mother in vengeance. Then the next evening goes to Harrit while they're celebrating having defeated Grendel and uh, kill somebody else in repayment for the fact that they have killed her son. Which is standard behavior. Yes, this is standard vengeance culture. And I would say the only thing that is potentially unusual about it is the question of whether women participate in vengeance culture, valid, whether it's valid for women to participate in vengeance culture in that particular way. Mm-hmm. But uh, as an act itself, it's not out of the norm, including the fact that she's actually quite restrained. Like, I think she only kills one person. Right. And it's very much a kind of life for a life. So Beowulf goes after her and she's in this underwater lair and he kills her ultimately and takes the head of Grendel with him. At Herit, they then celebrate. So then there's basically a big jump in time. Beowulf leaves Herit, goes home to his own people, the Yeats or Geats, depending on how you would like to pronounce it. Or Geats. <laughs> yes. Quite a few. My friend Catherine, who was on my last Beowulf episode and is an actual old English scholar, told me to pronounce it Yeats, so I'll say Yeats. And I'm going to say Geats. Also fine. Many, many years later, he's back at home with the Yeats and has eventually become their king. So in terms, by the way, of this question of, you know, what happens to all of these other people, I mean, the answer, I mean, it's not in the poem. I mean, we actually know because they're real people that eventually Hrothgar dies and that wealthy out had kind of gone all, done all these moves to try and protect her sons. And like, well, that didn't actually work out. They die everybody dies anyway but that's not in the poem that's just completely off to the side once we get to the part where it's years later and Beowulf is king of his own kingdom all of the stuff that happened in Hrothgar's lands is now just in the past as just part of Beowulf's heroic past but we're in a completely different kingdom I am going to say though Mm -hmm. Beowulf is sometimes a little hard to follow they're not in this translation because there's a narrator who was always telling stories of things that happen in the past mm-hmm. in various kingdoms. Yes. So it's not, this happens, then he kills this one, and then it's 50 years later, because there are a million other stories going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, there's a lot of interpolated stories that are supposed to be kind of illustrative of various kind of broader social concerns. Their kingdom is eventually then disturbed by a dragon. Beowulf makes this point of going alone to fight the dragon. Because somebody stole a golden goblet. Right. The dragon just didn't wake up one day and said, I think destroy everything. Something was stolen from her. Right, and uh, in her translation, yeah, she refers to the dragon as her. I think she's the only one who makes it a she. I don't know what the others did, whether it was it or he. I think the other translators have typically, I think, used he. So Beowulf goes on his own to fight the dragon. Wiglaf, one of his warriors, goes after him because he feels guilty because Beowulf gave them a lot of cool shit and so they should be fighting for him. The dragon mortally wounds Beowulf, but then is killed by Wiglaf. And Beowulf. Wiglaf does something to weaken right. the dragon, but I think Beowulf does the final coup de grace. Wolf, with his last strength, drew a dagger from his hip and dipped it into the dragon's side, wounding her fatally. Together, these two slew their foe. So it's sort of joint, I would say. Yeah. 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 So he got the final blow, but he couldn't have gotten that far and killed it if What's-His-Face hadn't done it first. Because he, I think, would have just been all the way dead if Wiglaf hadn't shown up in the first place. 
and weaken the thing so that he yeah. get that final blow. Right. Beowulf dies, and we end on this very somber note with Beowulf's funeral, not just because of the death of Beowulf himself, but because there's an expectation that essentially now, uh, because of not only Beowulf's death, but the fact that rumor is going to get around that most of his warriors wimped out and didn't even bother fighting. And he has no child. There's no heir. Yeah. It's a dearth of parenting. That he has no children. Yeah. I have no idea what his sexual proclivities are. Beowulf's? Yeah. He doesn't go to bed with the one woman who was propositioning him. Higgit. She couldn't convince Beowulf to step over her son nor come to her bed. (laughs) She realizes that her son is not going to be a successful ruler and that she's trying to kind of offer things to Beowulf. Right, but does she proposition him? It's arguably implied that the expectation is that she's going to marry him and that that would be the bonus is that she would therefore kind of maintain some amount of power. But that's, Uh, I can see that being the implication, but it's actually not directly in the text. Well, that's the only sex there is. Right, I mean, there's really not much in the way of sex. No, there's nothing. Right, I mean, it's just, I mean, sex is essentially just not even really relevant. I mean, obviously, you know, we have uh, Wilfiao and Trothgar who are, you know, a married couple, but there's really nothing in the Old English either about their sexual relationship. (gasps) Oh, there is a sexual relationship. It's horrible. Well, there's that one woman who it talks about how she sucked so much and then she got married to somebody and now she's nice. Modthrith. She was horrible and then she married Offa and, quote, Marriage mellowed the monster. But there's another one where somebody says that somebody was going to be married off to someone that it's going to be a disaster. That they're going to get married and then somebody is going to pop up and say that I I hate you and this one's going to kill this one and this one's going to that one at the party feast and this is just not right work there are marriages in the original old english questions of like to what extent marriages are successful or not in forming these pieces oh. because you know that's the idea of you know women as peace weavers is that they're supposed to be kind of weaving together these families and ending these feuds so there's that to the extent that there's any explicit reference in the headley to there being an actual sexual relationship that comes out of that marriage or that is part of that marriage, that's not actually in the Old English. Right, because I think the Friwaru disaster is at the wedding. Right. That she was married off to somebody, and that was supposed to go well, and that did not go well. At the wedding, they have, like, a major fight, I think, and that was the end of that peace-weaving. Right. So that <sighs> there's, you know, obviously a lot of reference to marriage, but there's really no explicit discussion of sex in the poem at all. Right. That is certainly one of the things that I think is interesting, that I think Headley both makes somewhat more explicit in her translation, and that also is much more apparent in The Mere Wife, is, of course, you know, sex and sexual desire, and, of course, in particular, women's sexual desire. You see that in her bail? Well, I mean, really just, I mean, with the Higgid line, that there's this kind of emphasis on you know and she's uh, asking Beowulf to come to her bed but you just said that if she's doing it she's doing it as a bribe so he'll become king and her son won't she didn't seem to have any particular interest right. in him but at least women as sexual initiators 
if not necessarily coming out of desire. Sexual or marriage, assuming they're, they're related. Well, well, my point is, though, that is that that's not even clear. It's not even clear necessarily that there's a marriage at stake in uh, the poem, and that that is something that Headley is uh, right. emphasizing as a plausible implication of what Higgett is doing, that Headley is kind of bringing that out in the translation in this very, in a much more explicit way. Right. It's only Modthrift, who was the monster mellowed by marriage, where you think that's because she's having a nice sex life, so she's kind of torturing anyway. And I'm not sure that that's but actually the implication of the Old true. English, as opposed to he tamed his shitty wife. Oh, not that horrible Shakespeare yeah like that basically she finally had like a man to tell her what to do well it says marriage mellowed and it's just guys yapping so who knows what happens her nature changed when she got free of her family she became queenly and she learned morals under his hand so it is unclear whether it was she was happy or looking at the old english it seems like it might just be basically that like you know this guy who was a decent person like told her what to do but all of these women including wilthiel they all really give more of a damn for their son oh yeah which doesn't not make sense i think that's something that kind of comes out a lot is this kind of question of to whom does one kind of owe this allegiance to and i think it's also you know it comes out in greek mythology too and this kind of question of whether clytemnestra should have felt her loyalty to her daughter to her husband but i think that's probably what makes willa so monstrous yes that she well she doesn't really seem to give a damn about any of them actually she's inherently monstrous but she's in a literary lineage where the women really will do anything for their right. sons and i think that she's well and i think really what kind of also i would say in some ways really does make willa particularly monstrous is that i don't think she gives a damn about any of them that she's outside of the normal webs of kinship and of the sense of allegiance to your kin, that I don't think she gives a shit about any of these people. I think that's the problem with Willa, is that she's isolated from these I webs. I cared the most about Ben, but not for No, I think long. she was clearly, I mean, she enjoyed having sex with Ben, but I think otherwise she was clearly just using Ben. The second he was right. no longer useful, she ditched him. Right, and she had no relation at all with the children by Right, him. we yeah, have so, no idea if she's way, ever like met them. These women. But in terms of Beowulf parallels, the other things I wanted to mention in terms of very specifics, we obviously have Gren and his mother, Grendel and his mother, but I do think it is really interesting that we have Willa as the dragon. And one of the things that's really, I would say, important about the dragon is the idea of the dragon as basically hoarding wealth and wealth as being all kept up by the dragon and not being spread around to your retainers that if a lord gets a bunch of stuff he's supposed to spread it around right like that's what makes a good lord in scandinavian customs is this kind of these kind of acts of gift giving and the dragon doesn't do that the dragon just kind of sits on his wealth you know i've been having these odd visions that i've read in other places dragons sitting on gold stores I, I I really must be having Yes, I wonder, I wonder where Tolkien <laughs> got that one from. And I wonder where Rowling got it from. I bet she got it from Tolkien. And it's also, isn't it, in one of those Narnia books? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But it all really goes back to old English Scandinavian ideas about dragons in this particular way in which what makes them monstrous is the way in which they 
hoard wealth and also are kind of in, in a way that also kind of represents their isolation from these uh, kind of structures of social relationships. On the other hand, what I found fascinating about Beowulf is that it was humans who dragged all the gold there and then they sort of all mm -hmm. died out and the dragon right. showed up. Well, and also that fundamentally at the end that ultimately they don't actually remedy the problem because I think they would just like toss all the wealth onto the pyre with Beowulf. Yeah, that I, yeah. that was bad. That was poor. Yeah. It's really poor. I think one of the things that is ultimately kind of functioning as describing Willa as monstrous is this kind of selfishness and the fact that she doesn't really have any real meaningful connections with anybody else. And so that she is hoarding power and wealth and willing to sacrifice anyone, no matter who, in order to achieve that. But what I really liked is the parallel for that part was... Dana finding the silver yes. cup because the silver cup kept reminding mm -hmm. me of the gold cup that the guy walked off with that started all the trouble yeah. with the dragon. And to some extent, the silver cup that Dana found started all of that trouble because she was so furious, but rightfully mm -hmm. so. I mean, they, they, they just literally walked all over yeah. her ancestors and her ancestors' yeah, and atrocious. belongings. But there, there was a similarity mm -hmm. in those two cups or palaces. Yeah. There's also a lot of detail-oriented things. Ben is diving underwater in order to go after Dana and Gren, so right. really just Grendel's mother right, in the right. poem. Trophy of Dana's arm, of course, recalls Grendel's arm and head, head. right? And then that eventually he brings Grendel's head back after he has killed Grendel's mother and found the corpse of Grendel. There is a reference in the poem to this swimming match between Beowulf and someone named Brekka, this guy Unferth, who's kind of who's presented as kind of a jerk that Unferth is like, I heard you lost that swimming match. And Beowulf was like, actually, really, I won, especially because oh, like, boring. I guess I came in like maybe second, but it's only because I like killed five monsters on the way. Wait, how did Ben Wolf kill his first victim? He, like, elbowed him in the head, right? He drowned him. He held him underwater with his elbow. He drowned yeah. him in the water. Yeah, so it is very much linked to this swimming match. And I would say one of the things that I think is really interesting, so obviously in The Mere Wife, Ben, our, our Beowulf, is one of the villains of the piece. Not an uncomplicated one, but, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, to the extent that we are, we're kind of talking about there being good guys and bad guys, he's a bad guy. One of the things that is then uh, related to that is, of course, the fact that she is then kind of interrogating the boundaries between what is reality and what is myth and the stories that people are telling about heroes. I mean, Beowulf is a oh, jackass yeah. with the boasting and the this and the this, and he's obviously exaggerating and his judgment is not always so wonderful, but he is not right. a coward. Ben Wolf is, mm -hmm. and they make it very clear when other people were out in this war risking their lives, yes. he was hiding. And I think it is really interesting that her Beowulf is terrible and a liar and a coward in a way that I don't actually think we get from Beowulf in the poem, but I think it does raise interesting questions about, as I said, the kind of boundaries between myth and reality. The thing that I wanted to remark on briefly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the Zemeckis Beowulf movie because I could die happy never talking about or thinking about that movie again. And you've and never, I've never seen, seen it. it. You, I'm never right. going to but see But one it. of the things that I do just want to mention is that Zemeckis, the director, and Gaiman, so sad that Neil Gaiman is one of the writers of that. But anyways, but the, the people responsible for that travesty of a film are to some extent 
doing the same thing, but they're, in my view, ultimately failing miserably at it because they're simultaneously trying to do that and also trying to make Beowulf this guy that like all the boys want to be and all the women want to sleep with in this very heteronormative worldview, which is clearly being propagated by that film. I, I, I'm sorry, I have nothing to add because I didn't see it. I listened to your podcast and it sounded absolutely <laughs> appalling. But, but that's the problem, right? Is that you can't do both. You can't say that Beowulf is a shitty liar about everything and also say that Beowulf is, like, fucking awesome. Well, you can certainly say that although he's a horror and a liar, that people find But that's not what the movie is doing. The movie is, I think, very clearly saying that we all should be attracted to him or, you know, be compelled by him and his masculinity. See, that's what I was also trying to figure out. From a modern sensibility, Beowulf is a It depends on whose modern sensibility. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not... My proud membership hasn't come through yet. (laughs) All the boasting, Mm -hmm. all the this, you know, all the the, story. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then at the end, when, as you said, he goes by himself, he doesn't want any help, he ends up dead. And granted, he's not that young Mm -hmm. by now, and these people aren't typical 200-year-old survivors. The end is that he has destroyed our yeah. country. You know, that, that mm-hmm. woman Keening, and that is in the, the original poem, he has no heir. He is dead. We are chickens, and the foxes mm-hmm. are coming. And it's because of his hubris. But what I don't know is whether when this poem was being orally disseminated... How admired he was. That's what I meant by a modern sensibility. Tall tales, some people like them, some people laugh at them. But I don't know whether he was somehow under suspicion as a pure hero in his time because of that last ridiculous well, I think he is. I, mean, I think that he's not actually an uncomplicated heroic figure. I mean, I think that it is telling that it ends with this episode about the dragon, which is ultimately about his failure. Yeah, but the dragon died too when he brought well, peace back. Well, but he didn't. I mean, because he killed the dragon. Burnt. But it's very clear. I mean, it's it is a choice that the poem ends on the fact that his kingdom is destroyed because of him. Right. But I think that's partly because he didn't have an heir. I think it's really important in European history. It's to because have he didn't have an heir, but it's especially before right. But you it's go also this right. But it's this whole move as well that you know the fact, and I think they're I think they're blaming both Beowulf and his warriors for the fact that he shouldn't have gone into this alone. Because the problem with that is both that Beowulf like didn't make it which is bad, but it also means that the whole kingdom is now going to be perceived as this kingdom where the warriors aren't brave enough to actually defend them and that that's going to make others more likely to Yeah, attack. that's the real problem. And so, and that's something that I think right. Beowulf is blamed for, for telling the warriors not to come with me. And then the warriors are also blamed for, with the exception of Wiglop, listening to him. Right. That, yeah, that I do think he is right. considered to be flawed. Oh, good. I think that the reason that it kind of ending on that 
that note is uh, deliberate and it's one that is kind of undermining any sense of him as being perfect. And I do think that there is an, an understanding in some of these old English, old Norse epics of kind of excessive pride and hubris as being something that's perhaps a source of one's downfall and that while obviously doing great deeds and seeking glory is all good, that it's also that it's not necessarily entirely a positive quality to have that pride, especially if you can't actually back it up, where it's something that he could do when he was young with Grendel, but he can't do when he's 60 with the dragon. So men have always been arrogant jerks, and everybody has always <laughs> known that, and no one's done a damn thing to yes. change it. Great. Remember, too, he can take all the credit he wants for killing Grendel's mother, but she's like a 100 years old. <laughs> interesting thing about Headley's translation or the poem itself is some moments which are so lyrically mm -hmm. beautiful. One of them is some guy saying, oh shit, it was Beowulf. Uh, they're all Beowulf, I think, saying there were people who reported that they had seen the mother and son mm -hmm. walking together in the mist. Yeah. It was so lovely. And then Beowulf has that other speech about the father's despair after mm -hmm. his son dies. I mean, they're beautiful. And they're, oh shoot, what's that word? Mm -hmm. Sensitive of an understanding of the human relationships and kinship. They're mm -hmm. just gorgeous. And that that's Side of yeah, too. And I think that is one of the really interesting things about the original poem is that I do think that there's that there's this kind of interest in kinship and that Grendel and his mother are absolutely part of that. And that, as I said, that there's, I think, a question of whether Grendel's mother is seen as dangerous because she's a woman doing things in terms of vengeance culture that should ultimately be done by men. But I think that the action she takes in and of itself is not actually bad by their cultural norms. Yeah, but I think they would have gone after Grendel's, whoever took vengeance, he, he, they took well, but of course they would have gone after her, but that's how vengeance culture works. Is that the problem with the problem with vengeance culture? And they're aware of this to the time, even while it kind of keeps happening. They're aware of the fact that the problem with vengeance culture is that it's endless. Oh, I didn't think so. I thought she had a right to take a life as repayment, and then but it, it never is, been and done. they know that. Oh, okay. So just because she. Had doesn't mean anybody is yeah exactly that uh mm -hmm. that the fact that it was like well you well because also i mean grendel had taken lives before that and so they have a right based on that to kill grendel and then she kind of has a right based on that to take vengeance and kill somebody else but then well but you killed my best bud so i have the right you know and so that's the problem is that it's a cycle i want to talk about two things one of which is mm -hmm. pretty different from between the book and the poem and one of which is arguably mm -hmm. the same but different the First is that in the novel, there is reference after reference to ghosts, mm -hmm. unless ghosts are a more modern invention, as opposed to just having people from the past. But over and over in the novel, they talk about ghosts. I'm not sure that ghosts are necessarily inherently modern, although I actually don't know offhand what precisely the history is of ghosts. Well, do you know any in medieval? Any medieval period, obviously, Shakespeare has. I think has there it. are medieval ghosts. Okay. Right, but there are tons in the mirror. Yes. 
I thought was interesting, but I think to some extent, anything that's in the past and gone, if you think about it, is functioning as yes. a ghost. And, and there certainly are medieval stories about ghosts and then there's also kind of the question of like if you see an apparition of a saint to what extent is that also or you know jesus to what extent is that also actually a ghost in terms of it being kind of and because remember also she's describing this woman as a saint yes and the woman is the the saint is the one who says the most interesting thing to her yeah i mean that's really the most yeah and that's really the most apparent ghost and you know people in the middle ages obviously saw visions of saints all the time. It's the ghost who said, listen to me, listen. In some countries, you kill a monster when it's born. Other places, you kill it only when mm-hmm. it kills someone else. Other places, you let it go out into the forest or the sea, and it lives there forever, calling for others of its kind. Listen to me, it cries. Maybe it's just alone. Beautiful line. One of many, but that one's a doozy. So I started typing out the great lines, and and I I typed out half the book because there were so many of them. The other thing is, we talked about this once, the choruses. Mm -hmm. There's the chorus of the mothers, and the chorus of, I've been calling them the spirits Mm -hmm. of the mountain, but they're really... The spirits or the ghosts of all of There's the dogs. Oh, that was hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) And you said there was nothing funny in this book. The point of view chapter of the dogs. The point of view chapter from the dogs. Well, it wasn't funny because they're the ones that told Ben where Dana and Gren were hiding. There's dogs. I know, but it's so... (laughs) There are obviously no choruses Uh in the poem, but there are all those narrators. Yes that keep popping up and saying, oh, this reminds me of this. Oh, this is going to happen. This is bad. Oh, don't forget this lady. And to some extent, it's Mm -hmm. not different, except that these choruses in the novel are involved in the action. Yeah, I would say it's more, it's more akin to the Greek choruses. But they're, they're not involved in the action in the same way. They're, they're not wiping fingerprints off a knife. No, but they're, they tend to, I thought they tended to respond to what's going on and sometimes give advice as opposed to actually physically doing The Furies it. are actually the chorus in... Oh, the, oh, okay. One of the plays of the Oresteia, the Furies are the chorus. I guess it must be the last one. I guess it must be, I guess it must be the Eumenides. I guess that must be the one in which they're actually the chorus and they're, but they're both the chorus and they're the ones pursuing Orestes and the reason that the trial has to take place. Oh, okay. And that's great. So, the, but that's like what the mothers are. Actually, I, that's actually probably yeah. like the Furies. So yeah, so that's something that I think has uh, has much more of a parallel in ancient Greek literature. Right. I don't offhand know of a medieval example, though I haven't looked it up, and it's possible that there is one. Right. But there are a gazillion narrators yes. in Beowulf. But can't possibly all same narrator because he's in 50 different places right, yeah and so there's a there's a lot of like people like kind of popping up and saying like let me tell this story right which i think maria headley sort of was what she remembered sitting at the end uh-huh. of the bar stool 
<laughs> One of the things also that I wanted to kind of note as well is that both the translation and the book are in a lot of ways, I think very much kind of about masculine violence and toxic masculinity and uh, the dangers there. Right. Marina Dimitrescu had a great review in the New York Review of Books that does, I think, make the very valid point that to some extent in the translation, that does involve uh, alighting some of the differences between medieval and modern masculinities. How so? The big thing that kind of strikes me in particular is that I think medieval masculinity is actually much more about your emotionally effective relationships with other men. And I think the fact that Beowulf goes it alone is actually ultimately a kind of failure of his, a kind of failure as opposed to a sign of how great he is from a masculinity perspective. That's interesting. And I don't think that's how Headley sees it. And you're saying, what you're saying the medieval thing is to have a group. Right, that there's obviously some kind of great deeds that you do yourself for individual glory, but there's also a real emphasis on the kind of strength that comes from your bonds with other men. And that's the medieval one? But that's not in Beowulf. Beowulf's separating himself from that is ultimately to some extent a failure, not a goal. Okay. I don't know if I agree since everybody is so crazy about him whenever he comes back from one of those first two battles as the soldier. It's obviously impressive that he's done these things by himself, but it does mean that he is uh, isolated from these bonds in a way that I don't think is ultimately a good thing. Okay, that's that's a subtext that I don't see reading the text on its surface, but I'm sure you're right. You yeah, so, I mean? that's, so that's my sense. And I, uh, you know, and I think that's kind of coming out of a lot of kind of reading about medieval masculinity. And it's actually one of the things that's come up with kind of recent studies about masculinity in Viking culture is the extent to which these uh, men that go off on these kind of ultra-violent independent escapades that there's on the one hand there is clearly something that is compelling about them but on the other hand there is something that in the text themselves is seen as being dangerous and problematic okay but obviously i'm an american and i've grown up on Mm -hmm. american movies and that's the american hero i mean whether i like it or not is is not the point but it but it is the american hero the loner who's isolated who goes out and and pretty much saves the world, saves the, the little girl from the Native Americans, saves this, saves that. And the only difference is we've got a lot of buddy movies so that you but can But I think that is do. very much kind of linked to a modern masculinity. That's what I'm saying. An American mm-hmm. modern masculinity. That I think one of the things that actually makes it toxic in a way that not that there aren't toxic elements about medieval masculinity, but I think one of the important elements of modern toxic masculinity is that it discourages these close affective bonds with other men, that having a close relationship with a person is that like, that like, there's a kind of like, oh, if you're if you have a relationship like that with another man, then like that makes you gay and being gay is less masculine in the kind of in this kind of discourse of American toxic masculinity. That's very fundamentally not medieval. But the other American thing is in disaster movies, comedies, just about everything, the buddy movie, and for that matter, Moby Dick. I mean, it goes back a while in American literature where there are two men who have a relationship, which is not necessarily homoerotic, 
But the important thing about the male relationship is that it excludes Yes, men. which is, I think, also actually true of these medieval relationships between men is that they are very, oh, okay. that they are very fundamentally about the exclusion of women. But what changes is that I think, I think the emotional tenor of those relationships changes. And that especially when you're talking about things that are much more modern, there's this constant need to do basically these like, but no homo though. Right. <laughs> As I said, the introduction to Beowulf is, is just an astonishing document. But one of the things she said is that she translated, pronounce it, Sarah. What? What? Which has been translated as hark, low, so, whatever. She translated it as uh-huh. bro to get across the idea that this culture, these telling of stories is one guy to Mm -hmm. a bunch of men, which to me seems as much biblical Mm -hmm. as medieval. Yeah, and I do actually think there's really something in that. And and that's one of the things that I actually do like about the translation is that I do think it has this kind of emphasis on the fact that it it makes visible the fact that it is men telling stories about and to other men, by, about, to, etc., other men, and that women are to some extent, you know, kind of pop up every now and then, but are to some extent essentially irrelevant. Considering American literature, romantic American literature, I think there's an astonishing number of women in mm. Beowulf. Truly astonishing compared to Moby Dick. <laughs> and this is why I don't want to read Moby Dick. Seriously, compared to Oh Man in the Sea, there's an amazing mm-hmm. amount of women. And all have mm-hmm. speaking roles, though they... I mean, this is actually the thing that comes up for me on the podcast constantly is that you have uh, so many adaptations, not just available of everything that are in a lot of ways uh, more misogynist or more excluding of women than the real Middle Ages. Okay, I'll buy that. I have give or take seven or eight women characters in Beowulf. Right, well, that's that's including the people who are, I would say, are being kind of talked about in these kind of songs on the side. But it doesn't include the dragon and the earth and spring and everything non-human that she's feminized. But there are six or seven, I'm counting Grendel's mother as a named woman character, even though she doesn't have a name. That's a lot of women in a little Right, and in general, what you tend to see is that you basically have in most Beowulf adaptations, at best case scenario, you have uh, Grendel's mother and Welvia. And then you also sometimes have random, basically, women sex objects who are added in. I actually, I will, I'm gonna, I have to say one more thing about the Zemeckis Beowulf movie, because I found it out and did recently and did not know it for the podcast first came out. Okay. There is a woman who Catherine and I dubbed Ursa Table Boobs. Her name is Ursa. That is not in the movie, but it is in the credits. The main context in which we see Ursa is that Ursa is literally wiping, like washing a table with her breasts. She's just sort of like boobing over a table in this kind of very low cut dress. And that is how she's washing the table. <laughs> well, I hope she got paid well. She is ah! played by the director's wife. Well, I hope she gets a very good settlement. Either, I believe they're still married. And also that he has done this in multiple movies that he has had like a hypersexualized character played by his wife, which is creepy. I think I prefer Alfred Hitchcock making a right. cameo right. in his movies. This is sort of nauseating. But I mean, all of these women are given in terms mostly mm-hmm. of their male relatives Mm-hmm. Friends, fathers, brother, but that doesn't seem to me yeah. unrealistic. I really like that part. The stories of 
Not like the stories particularly, but there are mm-hmm. tons of them. Yeah. Much more than in half the movies right. they make. Right. Now, you know, unless they're remaking Jane right. Austen. I mean, that's a, that's the general thing that I find very frustrating is that I think there's a way in which people use perceptions about the Middle Ages to excuse misogynistic modern choices. When if you actually look at the medieval texts or historical accounts, you could do very different things and could make very different choices. Right. That's one of the one of the one of the ways in which the Middle Ages is being co-opted. Yeah, absolutely. And I do like, I have mixed feelings about the feminization of the dragon and whether or not that accomplished the boat and whether or not that really feels like it accomplishes anything. The boat, the I'm boat. not sure we need the boat. <laughs> but I do really like the... I like the dragon. Right, but I do really like the sense in which she, uh, I think kind of actually very, very subtly in a lot of places uh, kind of teases out some of the hints perhaps in some ways is that the kind of feelings of these women who are in many ways be, you know, who are kind of showing up and being talked about but who are in many ways really kind of showing up in the context of being used by men. But the great thing is the dragon, because all in all, I don't know exactly what it says in the other translations, but her making the dragon female and having a man infiltrating her bedroom in order to steal the cup, I thought was brilliant. And then the line that the guy... Saw her as a dimwit, clocking neither her courage nor her grit. I mean, I don't think she makes it a woman just so she can say, okay, I got another female in here. I think she made some very important points. Yeah, it is certainly an interpretation. I would recommend this translation. I think it's a really interesting translation that's really in a really interesting way to think through both medieval and modern ideas about gender. And it's in that spirit that I'm actually going to be assigning it to students. And it's 120% mm-hmm. accessible. Yeah. And I, and I think in that it's really fantastic. It is certainly, however, also an interpretation, which I don't think is a bad thing, but that it is uh, less literal than other translations one could choose. The Hindi translation is not perfectly literal either. It makes a number of choices that are more poetic than literal. The Reliutsa translation, which I also actually have, I have, I literally have three Beowulves sitting out here in front of me. Probably one of the more literal options. Okay. I am no expert. But I have done some reading, and my understanding is that you cannot, because of the problems with the text itself, because of the problems of the poetics, because of the problems of, as Tolkien said, it's being archaic Mm -hmm. linguistically for its time, you cannot do a literal translation. We don't even have a literal translation of the first word. Nearly everything is going to be a choice. So maybe some of her choices are clearly more out there, more contemporary than other choices. But remember, Seamus Haney translated what? Mm -hmm. As so... Because it reminded him of his Irish uncle. It's not even Uh a translation. It's, gee, that's the way my Irish uncle began Mm -hmm. stories. So I'm going to translate what as so. That's not a translation. Right, I would say there's there's a lot of words here and there where that one being certainly one of them where interpretation is called for no matter what. There's also the balance between 
having a translation that's more literal and having a translation that reads like a poem. You talk about, for example, if you compare the Haney translation with the Liutza translation, which I've also used before in teaching. The Liutza translation, it's a bit more faithful to the text in some ways, but it the way it flows is nowhere near as pleasant. Like it kind of puts it into lines, but it doesn't actually feel like a poem. And I have a translation by somebody named Purvis, a woman done in 2012 she puts in a poem by hildeberg so that's the one whose brother father brother son husband were all killed by yeah. the somebodies the danes or something yeah. she has a beautiful poem of what she is here i am the victim right. and, and everything sucks so yeah there's there's a wide array but i think there can be a perfect right. translate you just especially also because it. as i said i do think it's actually a value to think about the balance between on the one hand uh, representing words as accurately as possible versus representing the experience it's an oral tradition which means you have to write it in such a way that it's best right and it is, you know and it's a poem you know i mean that also i think that matters there's ways about the that there's things about the way in which it flows and tears to you i mean it shouldn't read the same as prose and i think that that's something that i do actually think that the headley translation does really well is that i think it's a brilliant translation to read out loud i think that's also true of the haney translation god i've listened to that a million times in the car when i actually went any place in a car <laughs> and, I, and i think there's a lot to be said for a lot of these translations and that they're all functioning as interpretations and they're all doing different things. Uh, so I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a reason that I am sitting here with three different translations of Beowulf open in front of me. And the other thing I will note that uh, Headley also does a lot with using alliteration, which I think is very cool. <gasps> alliteration, her internal rhymes. Right, and I think that, you know, especially the alliteration, because, you know, rhyme is actually relatively rare in Old English poetics. It's really much more about alliteration, but it's something that they really do a lot more with. And I love that that's something that she does. Oh, also, fun fact, for the mere wife, I hadn't, I actually am not sure, I can't remember if I noticed this, I don't think I think I noticed it the first read, but I was reading something that remarked on it. Each chapter of the Mere Wife begins with another variant on the translation of Wet. Most of them. Here, write them all down. Listen. So, <laughs> what? Attend. Hark. Tell. Ah. Low. Yes. Sing. Now. But even that line I kept reading out loud, Marriage Mellow mm -hmm. the Monster. Yeah, no, I, mean, <laughs> I think the alliteration really is fantastic and is something that draws on the experience of what hearing this poem recited out loud would have actually been like in a way that I think is really interesting. The other thing, and I'm not going to read it all out loud, is that I took notes of every time a character says or somebody says to one of the main characters, mm -hmm. listen. So it's like the first thing uh -huh. Dylan says, etc. And it goes on and on. And some of them are people, the families talking to their mothers. And some of them are these strangers on a train. And some of them are ghosts. But mm -hmm. it's over and over yeah. and over. It's, it's, it's an astonishing novel. It truly is. astonishing novel. There's a word in the Old English, O-R-C-N-E-A-S, uh -huh. Orkneas. We don't know mm -hmm. exactly what it means. Haney translates it as evil phantoms. Headley translates it as monsters. It's something mm -hmm. we don't like. 
but the three letters are O-R-C, like an orc. Ah, yes. So yeah, so that's then a very good lead into the Historia Veritas segment where I want to talk about ideas about monsters and the monstrous because I actually wanted to start out by talking about Tolkien. Tolkien is extremely important in the history of how people talk about Beowulf in part because in his article, The Monsters and the Critics, one of the big interventions that he made was to make the argument that the monsters actually matter, that we should actually think and talk about the monsters. Because previously, to some extent, there was a sense that, well, I mean, you should like mine Beowulf for these little like facts here and there about real kings. But then there's all of these like dumb stories about monsters and who cares. Yeah. And so one of the, and so that is his intervention is the argument that the monsters actually tell us something about medieval worldviews. We now have moving, jumping way, way forward into the 21st century, a real subfield of monster studies. And that this is something that a lot of people are writing and talking about in a variety of really interesting ways. Uh, One phrase I wanted to use from a scholar, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, is that he's described medieval monsters as disturbing hybrids whose externally incoherent bodies resist attempts to include them in any systematic structuration. And so the monster is dangerous, a form suspended between forms that threaten to smash distinctions. So in other words, what he means by this is in part that what makes monsters monstrous is precisely the fact that there's often this kind of lack of clear boundaries. And in particular, I think that there's not always a lot of clarity about what is monstrous and what is human. That there is this kind of ambiguity about what exactly are the boundaries between monstrous and human. That's one of the other things this book is about. That's really something that Headley picks up on in really interesting ways and is interrogating in this book is this kind of question of what's monstrous and what's human. And I think ultimately kind of everybody is human and if you're monstrous, that's metaphorical. But I do think that this is a kind of really interesting question of, you know, we have even these kind of descriptions of people who tend to be referred to as the monstrous races. So for example, these are, you know, like these kind of cyclops things that there are these kind of giants with only one eye, that there are these people who have, according to one Mandeville manuscript, that there are these kind of people who don't have heads and they have their eyes and their mouth are kind of like behind their shoulders. And uh, <laughs> One of the things that another scholar of the monstrous, Asa Simon Mittman, has talked about is the idea that these monsters are also human, that there is a real humanity in these monsters, and that to some extent there is a kind of acknowledgement in these texts that they are monstrous, but they are also human, but they are different. And so there's this uh, this kind of sense of these things as being, uh, of, the, of the monstrous and the human as being fundamentally interrelated. Frankenstein. Yeah, and I think that there's a that there's a long literary tradition of interrogating the kind of boundaries between monster and human, and that arguably, and I think this kind of goes back to older literature as well. I think this is kind of showing up, you know, the Cyclops in particular. I think this is showing up in Greek mythology of this interest, as I said, in the boundaries between the human and the monstrous. The other piece of this that I do think is important to note here is that in both medieval representations of monstrosity and in our modern discussions of them, there are links, often very disturbing ones, between the monstrous and the marginalized. And so this comes up in a variety of ways. So I mean, if you think about it, in some ways, it kind of makes sense that if the monstrous is disturbing because it's like us and human and yet not like us, how does that then map onto other people who in, say, a medieval Christian imagination 
are also like us and not like us. So that includes that we have a number of caricatured medieval depictions of Jews and Muslims that are very much about linking non-Christians with the monstrous in various ways. There's also this upsetting tradition in both literary and gynecological texts from the medieval world, which use this discourse of monstrosity to describe the female body. And so this comes up in a variety of ways. It comes up in these kind of descriptions of women's bodies in ways that are grotesque and are kind of simultaneously erotic and repulsive. There's actually been some interesting readings of actually the Song of Songs and the way in which it kind of describes like parts of the women's bodies as like animals and towers as like being this kind of somewhat like grotesque and monstrous female. I don't think that's the intent. I don't know if it's the intent, but I'm not sure I think the intent of the author matters. I think it's a valid reading. I wouldn't want to be the way, I wouldn't want to look like the way he describes. I mean, it's weird. It's a weird way to describe the female body. And I, and I do actually see the argument that the kind of weird ways in which, and grotesque ways in which female bodies are described, even when they're also claimed to be in some ways erotic, it does kind of map onto the monsterizing of a female body as being different, but also similar to the male body in a way that is then read as disturbing. And I mean, this is also coming up in terms of the way that they actually describe real aspects of uh, women's anatomies and women's bodies. And in particular, the way people talk about menstrual fluid as being this dangerous, corrosive substance. Ruins your crop, sours the milk. And it's also, I think it's actually really interesting that Grendel's mother has corrosive blood. Can't touch a Torah Mm -hmm. if you're menstruating, most believe even though they are technically Mm -hmm. wrong the sense of menstrual blood is a source of uh, impurity which to some extent is something that's kind of showing up in the bible but then obviously gets translated in a number of really really different ways that are not in the bible and uh, that as i said even kind of goes so far as yeah as you were saying that there's a sense of it being this fluid that has this actually destructive potential so i left the medieval stuff to you but i did google what monsters Uh mean to us or why we need monsters. And I found out basically three categories, though I think there were four. One is it's a great us mm-hmm. versus them unification. Mm-hmm. We are okay, they mm-hmm. are monsters, whatever group you're talking about. And it very well may mm-hmm. include women if it's males who are defining it. The other one is that The monsters represent the things we fear Mm -hmm. most in ourselves and want to repress and are afraid they are going to escape. And the third one is that what you really need to be careful of, and not the zombies and the vampires, but police killing black people. American government officials torturing people in prisons, bankers, politicians, capitalists, the people who are figuratively sucking blood from the population. And those are the monsters, and they're all walking around wearing suits and until the pandemic eating in the very best That's actually, I think it's actually kind of the point of the first season of True Blood. is like you have all of these vampires and like maybe that's scary but actually the real problem is racism and bigotry but the other thing i read is modern scientific theory that the circuits in your brain that fire up Mm -hmm. for fear are the same circuits 
that fire up hmm. for empathy. So if you have a monster like Frankenstein's monster, whose name I think yes. is Adam, that if your brain is really firing on all circuits, you're going to be disgusted and empathetic simultaneously. And I think this is going back to the problem of monsters as being these beings that in some ways are kind of crossing boundaries and are hybrid is that the problem with monsters is that they uh-huh. are both too unlike us, but also too like us. Right. And so, you know, then you have these kind of simultaneous ways in which monsters are all are very kind of fundamentally human, but also ways in which humans are treated as monsters and represented as monsters. So the other thing about monsters, they've been saying for years, they reflect Mm -hmm. our anxiety. So you can sort of graft American anxieties, for instance, by looking at how many books and movies are coming out about Uh zombies. In something like Beowulf, then, you can chart, there's an anxiety that there Mm -hmm. are monsters. There's a a relief, the monsters are slain, and then another anxiety that the short-sightedness of slaying the last monster leads to the total destruction of your entire life and kingdom. And I think also that the specifics of what the monsters represent also says a lot, and Beowulf also says a lot about our kind of ideas about our kind of own anxieties. Mm -hmm. I do think that actually the kind of way in which Grendel's mother is participating in a vengeance culture is to some extent a kind of thinking about like the fact that this kind of vengeance culture might never be able to end unless you actually basically wipe out an entire family which they do essentially. The dragon is very much a commentary on this, on the problem of hoarding wealth and not kind of sharing it, which is something that undoubtedly there are kings who are like not so generous and do that. Right. The final thing that I wanted to comment on in terms of our ideas about monsters is talk a little bit about medieval monsters and how they are related to often modern ideas about race. And so here in particular, I'm drawing on the work of another of a medievalist named Dorothy Kim, who has recently discussed how Tolkien, in his reading of Grendel, explicitly links him as a descendant of Cain with medieval discourses that are then connecting the sons of Cain to Black Ethiopians. There have been arguments made about ways in which Tolkien is to some extent kind of problematically making links between monstrousness and blackness in a way that I, in ways that I don't actually think are in the poem, that this is then something that then gets reclaimed to some extent by, uh, by Toni Morrison, where she is centering Grendel and Grendel's mother as marginalized characters and as figures of blackness, so that there are interesting ways to do things like that. And I think that's really coming up also in The Mere Wife is these, uh, these kind of various intersections that we've talked about between the monsters and the marginalized. First of all, there is the, you know, I think uh, neither Dana nor her son are white. And that in particular, there's a kind of question of the extent to which her fears about Gren and the way people will see him as monstrous are linked to her fears about the ways in which uh, American cops see brown boys as monstrous and dangerous. I don't know. Do you? If she is not white, I sort of thought of her as white, but I don't know if she's white. If she, say, let's say, comes from some sort of Native American background, that really changes a whole lot about the Herat people mm-hmm. trampling on yep. graveyards. I think certainly the way in which Herod is talked about, I think certainly there's 
a lot of implications about gentrification. And so that certainly leads me to believe that this is a community that I don't know if it's supposed to be Native American. I don't know or if it's supposed to evoke that or if it's just supposed to be destruction that primarily white community is uh, causing to a lower income and probably primarily brown or black community but you know but i noticed there's actually is a moment in which willa when willa says that she had a gun she says something like it's not racist for me to say that this person who has like one eye and a big scar is dangerous seems dangerous well that's the other thing willa gives me the most questions i raised the one about why she's the only Mm -hmm. one standing and the other one is why when she says there be monsters she gets in so much trouble for it. Presumably, the only answer is that there was a race issue, but I don't actually see that in the book. So whether it's that, you shouldn't say that. I, I don't know why she gets in so much trouble for saying there were monsters here and they killed my husband. It's hard, I think, especially because we don't have anyone else's perspective, really. Let's say two or three times. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. And they try. Yes. I mean, she gets in trouble yeah. for it. As I said, that's, that's certainly how on this reading, I at least thought that the implication was that Dana was, uh, was also not white, but I'm not sure exactly. So at this point, I think we can move to the Fabula Nostra section where we talk about a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. I was just going to cast the mere wife. I don't know if you had other thoughts. I was going to cast the mere wife and say how I think it should be done. So why don't we actually both give our both of our casting and then we can talk together about thoughts about how it should be done. If there were a time warp, I would like Dana and Willa to be Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman at the same age they were in <laughs> Practical Magic. But no time warps. So I had to Google actresses in their 30s. The actress for Dana, who is the best able to show hunted, haunted, confused, and determined, is Zoe Kravitz. Hmm. I like that. That's a good one. Thanks. I decided I wanted to choose somebody who really, to me, I think can really pull off the kind of warrior aspect of Dana. And so I was thinking of uh, Denai Guerrero, who plays Okoya in Black Panther. I had a real problem for Willa, because I think Willa should be uh, yeah. blonde. <laughs> and I know actresses can change their hair, but I don't like a lot of blondes. I got a thing against blondes. And first I wanted Emily Blunt, and then I said, no, I only want Americans. So I, I switched to Julia Stiles, who I think okay. would do a fine job. I was thinking January Jones, because I think in part the, there are a lot of similarities between her character in Mad Men, at least at the beginning, and Willa at the beginning. I think you've seen her in X-Men, maybe. I've seen her. She's got like wavy, but she's better than most of the blondes. I like January Jones. Am I to the yes. guys? So here's the problem with the guy. I have to do okay. both guys at once. Well, first I wanted all Americans. And I said, screw it. All the all these American guys. I don't want the, the you know, the the younger brothers of people I loved. And then the people I truly loved. I mean, I think Heath Ledger would be great, but right. we can't have Heath Ledger. I think Heath Ledger is way too likable to be any of these men. I thought he he could play Roger, but watching him die would kill me. So no. So then your father suggested that I want one of the Hemsworth mm-hmm. boys. I said, I'll 
So I got Chris and Liam, though I can't decide which one should be Roger and which one should be Ben. You know, I love The Rock, but I don't know. I just don't see it. So I think the two okay. ones were close. They're close enough to America. I was thinking Leonardo DiCaprio is Roger as being able to like really, you know, pull his like revolutionary road style shitty husband. I think he's, forgive me, Leo. I think he's a little. So overly, is Roger. And I think at the end, like I. Oh, I forgot that maybe I should make the overweight Thor <laughs> Roger. Right. All right. Caprio's too short. Roger's also short. She talks about how, like, Roger's 5'11". I guess that's fine. I, I can't, can't wear heels, heels. I guess it's okay. Uh, and he's not too he's old? He's a little older, but, like, I'm not sure that's in text, but I think it actually works. Okay. He's not, he's not that much older okay. than January Jones. I think January Jones is probably a little older than... If yeah. they turn down both uh-huh. Hemsworth boys and put Caprio, I can live with that. I also have a non-American for uh, for Ben because I was thinking Alexander Skarsgård, who is the good-looking of the Skarsgård brothers. I disapprove. I totally disapprove. It really bothers me that we need a really, really good-looking American husband. Let's get Skarsgård. Isn't he the same one that was in Big Little Lies? Married to oh, Nicole Kidman? He? I never actually saw yes. that. Yes, and that's why Because your father suggested that, too. I said, no, I am tired of having these scars guards play roles that should be played by Americans. Though I understand the Hemsworth are Americans either. But I'm tired of scars guards. Though we're seeing the father being like a total psychotic in something called River, which is fun. But no, I I am there. I'll, I'll let you have Leo. But I don't so like. So I'm sports. picking him because uh, they, I'm actually picking him because you know, because of his uh, turn as a Viking vampire in True Blood, that I think is like really uh, like really the like right sort of character that like the the way in which he's both like very charming but also very creepy and dangerous. Then why is he better than The Rock? I think The Rock's too wholesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think The Rock is much more wholesome. The Alexander Skarsgård is, I don't know, I think there's a way in which he like really can play like compelling, but also like a little creepy, maybe. But I don't care. He's not even from this. He's not from an English-speaking country. You don't know where Ben Wolf is originally from. (laughs) They dumped him at the orphanage. He is very blonde and very tall. Well, we'll have to find a blonde, tall American man. Send out recruits. <laughs> Who are you thinking for the mothers? Okay, I have four mm-hmm. women for mothers. And I don't really care how yeah, they Yeah, and actually, put I have for mine. Charlize mm-hmm. Theron. Christina Charlize Theron Appleby. is barely older than the, da- than, the, than the daughters. But we don't know who the other two. I don't think, I think she could be, look older. Remember, this is the other problem mm-hmm. with this book that I meant to say before. It takes place over at least 15 years. Right. So everyone's going to need makeup. Charlize Theron is 45. But they're well-deserved, remember? And Roger is a plastic surgeon. I'll read you the other three, and you can compare. Christina Mm -hmm. Applegate, Mm -hmm. Sandra Bullock, and Angelina Jolie, which I think would be really funny. I want Angelina Jolie's (laughs) team. That would be funny. She could do motion. She could be, to age her up, you could do motion capture, like in the Zemeckis Beowulf. 
That's how I'm done with characters. I'll get to my cinematic remark after you. Okay, I was thinking uh, Glenn Close and Angelica Houston. See, I don't think they need to be anywhere near mm. that age, but I could be wrong. I would have them mm. much younger than that. I did have them much younger than that. I mean, a different yeah. generation. And the other, the only other casting that I mentioned. So, so the boys, I think we both agreed that you know they should be young people we've never heard of. The boys are a problem. Because they go from seven yeah, I think to you need I think you need two two actors for each at least. Well, you need them when they're seven, and then you can probably skip. Yeah, to yeah, when I think the book does close enough to that that I think that's fine. Right. But yeah, but you need two actors for that, I think. But the only other casting that I had was I was thinking Natalie Emmanuel, who is uh, Missandei on Game of Thrones as Dana's saint. Oh, that's interesting. I suppose you could film her with a candle in her chest. Yeah, it's, how you do it. it's a movie. I want the movie to be either quite stylized or quite French. And I want the voiceovers. Yeah. I want to mm-hmm. hear the mothers. They can be doing whatever they're doing. I want to hear the mothers. I want to hear... I've been calling them the spirits yeah. of the mountain. And I also tend to think of them as totally female, though I don't have the mm-hmm. right to do that from the text. So I want those two voiceovers, like a French movie as we're going through. At the end of the movie, I want it made clear that the mother's voiceovers are done mm-hmm. when they're dead. And the voices of the mound, mountain's voiceovers are basically Dana mm. when she's dead. Mm. Interesting. So that's what the voices of the dead voiceovering, and you don't know that until the end, that that is the, mm-hmm. the ghosts, the dead, the whatever yeah. you want to call them, are the ones giving us the information we need to make mm-hmm. sense of this story. The thing I really don't know how to do is I don't, know how the movie could possibly preserve the ambiguity about whether or not Gren is in some way monstrous. There's only one way to do it, and you can do it in the theater. You can't do mm-hmm. it in the movie. You could do it as a pandemic theater experience, and you could wear a mask. Right. Or, you're right, because if you do... What do you call that when you do funny things with pixels so we don't know... Right, if you, like, blur his face. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would just, like, make you feel like you're watching, like, a reality show and somebody didn't sign their release. The only way to do it is to always film them from the back. Yeah, and that seems really hard. I bet it could be pulled off if you were a filmmaker. That he's either from the back or from far away or he's sort of Mm -hmm. off screen. That's why in certain ways I think this would be better... Mm-hmm. As a theme. Yeah, which might be, that might be true. Yeah. And as a movie. But yeah, because that is a problem. You really would either have to make a mm-hmm. decision or you could make this wacky thing like Phantom of the Opera where he wears some sort of balaclava and then he pulls it off. Right, he's, he's got like a really wrong. like big coat and a hood the whole time. Or as I say, I mean, people used to wear balaclavas and ski masks, you know, they seem to be right. cold a lot of the time. Much of it seems. I guess he could have a really meters. big coat and like a big hood that's kind of leaving his like face in shadow. I I think if you knew what you were doing, you could you could pull it. It would yeah. be a little contrived, but it has. Right. Yeah, I mean, you have to either have it be contrived or, or well, you lose the ambiguity. Right. I mean, or you sort of switch back and, and forth. It wouldn't hurt it that much. It would be a different story, but I think you could you because you could have if you knew what you were doing, you could have his face 
and then you could have superimposed right. on that right sees him and then dylan loves him we don't know that dylan is seeing 100 percent reality either if there is so i don't think there is anything mm-hmm. but i mean because at the end i think it's clear but that there, there isn't because at the end it talks about how after ben kills him everybody's like it's clear to everybody that he's just a little boy or, you know, a teenage boy, I guess, at that point. But. Right. But at some point, Dana says, very, very late, it doesn't matter what form a child takes. He might be smoke and he might be a screaming monster flying across a mountaintop. He might be a boy with a tender heart picking up skeletons and trying to put them back together. He might be all that. You will know he's yours. He's nothing but your son, whatever he appears <laughs> to anybody else. So the ambiguity is there, but there's also the sense that if you love somebody, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it depends which of those they want to fall down Mm -hmm. on, which side of those Mm -hmm. that issue. But it seems to me it would be very contrived to have a two-hour movie where you never saw one of the main characters' face. Right. <laughs> it's doable, but, you know, everybody... It seems... Saying, eh, seems it's, a little, it's a little artsy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can now move into the estimatio, or rating. So what would you rate this on a scale from one to five, based on whatever criteria you see fit? I don't know what to do, because, as I said before, I wanted to copy out the best lines, and I ended up copying out nearly all of them. And nearly every line, I said, that should be embroidered and put on a pillowcase. Is The Mere Wife a perfect novel? All I know is I read it. As soon as I read it, I wanted to read it again. I read it again, and it still automatically went onto my pile of books I mm-hmm. need to reread. It is just a gem sentence to sentence. So I would certainly give that a five. I don't actually know how to grade mm-hmm. the poem. I think if you want to grade it by something that's 100% accessible mm-hmm. now, that could blared across loudspeakers and everybody would look up and say yes 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 then that's a five if you're talking about something that people are going to read in 20 30 years i don't right. know famous phrase hashtag yeah and i think the downside of the translation is i think it is zero right, and i think fucks. the translation is the upside of it is that it's very accessible i think the downside of it is that in potentially even a few years i don't know but that it's going to relatively soon perhaps seem dated Right. So I don't know what to give a grade for something that at the moment is what everybody needs, but in five, ten years, we're going to need something a little different. But even with that, I'm going to go by what we need now, because Beowulf, if anybody's going to read it, somebody says she owes a debt of gratitude to Lin-Manuel mm-hmm. Miranda. It's sort of the same kind of let's make this stuff accessible right. with certain rhythm, certain language, certain exhilaration. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to give her a five for everything. Fair enough. Oh, I think I'm going to I'm going to ultimately do a 4.5 as a kind of general rating. I really love the mirror wife and I really love the translation. I 
have it to some extent kind of different parts of me in terms of my experience of it. As a feminist, I adore both. As a medievalist, I like some things and am kind of so-so on others. Like in particular, I just like, I have a weird thing where I just don't understand why everybody thinks that like wealthy Owen and Beowulf have to like have sex. I just don't get it. <laughs> I just, I just don't get where that comes from, except for the fact that they're like both like, uh, like perceived as attractive. Uh, <laughs> so I just have, you know, minor things here and there in terms of I don't exactly as a medievalist interpret Beowulf quite the way she does. And for me, I'm going to make that, I'm going to make ah. that kind of knock it as in general to a 4.5. But I do have her, like, I think this is, they're both uh, really excellent and interesting. As I said, I'm going to be teaching the translation this coming spring. Going to, cool. I think, potentially offer some kind of excerpts of the mere way if I'm trying to figure out how and in what context to do that. But I, I do I do love these and would recommend them to everybody. But I think ultimately I'm going to score them a 4.5, which, I mean, for this podcast is also relatively high. I don't have that many things to get above like a three. Are there places where the listeners could find you, my mother, on the internet? Well, so far I haven't figured out how to change my name to Dr. Greenfield on Twitter because I don't think I have any name on Twitter. I just have a user's name, which is probably BethG20904, but I'm under my real name on Okay, and Facebook. you're also, of course, a member of the Media Evil Facebook group. Absolutely. So you can find this podcast at the aforementioned Facebook group. You can also find us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcaster app, and please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, and I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Sarah Ipchdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Bye.